Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and this is Torah Nuggets number 12, which is Lesson 6, Part 2 of the series that we're doing on the Lord's Prayer. In Part 1 and 2, our focus now has been on that specific phrase of the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is how it reads in the New American Standard Bible. Now, for us so far, we realize that Jesus is teaching in Hebrew, not Aramaic. It's the first century AD. He's teaching only to Jews in a Jewish culture. It's the culture of the Second Temple Judaism. And prayer for his disciples, as we have seen in the previous lessons, Prayer was a mainstay of Jewish life. They had daily prayers that they said three times a day. And in Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer, Hatafila Adonai, and giving it to his disciples, and I've renamed it Hatafila Talmudim, the, the, the prayer of the disciples. The ideas and the words that were used by Jesus in this prayer, this was ideas and concepts that the disciples were very familiar with. They were concepts that were just part of their regular walk with the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. A concept like the kingdom of God. So for us, again, we're going to reconnect and try to ask ourselves that question, what did they see? What did they hear when they heard Jesus' words, when they heard the prayers, when they heard the words of this prayer? So we're going to return. And definitely as we grasp what they heard, what they understood, it will add to and expand our understanding. And God willing, it will enrich us praying the Lord's Prayer or the prayer of the disciples. So in the first century A.D., the Jews were very familiar with the phrase, the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, they would use the phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And they would use this phrase interchangeably. The reason being is, the Pharisees, they wanted to add a fence around specific laws in the Torah. And the fence would be a prevention, a prevention for people that if they come to the fence and do not go over it, they would not break the commandment. Let me give you an example. In Exodus 20, verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. Now, God is not God's name. We know his name. It's the four Hebrew letters, yud Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton. I pronounce it Yahweh. Some people pronounce it Yahweh. Uh, others pronounce it Yehovah. And there's still a debate as to the correct pronunciation of God's name. However, God's name is the yud Hey vav Hey. The Pharisees said, if you don't say God's name, you can't break the commandment. So they created a law that said, don't say his name. 
and they substituted other words to use instead of God's name. So, for instance, they would use the word Lord in Hebrew Adonai rather than God's name, which is written in the Bible. Or they would use the name, the phrase, the name, Hashem. They would use that as a cover for God's actual name in the Bible when they're writing it or when they were reading it. Matter of fact, the Pharisees, their fence was, you might say, so high, they wouldn't even say the word God in some cases. So they used the word heaven instead of God. So all of a sudden, when we read about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we find that both of those phrases are identical. Now, before we continue, I wanted to let you know that I've linked you to several articles from highly reputable scholars. And these are my sources. These are the ones from whom I'm, I'm, I'm teaching. I'm not teaching my own opinion, but I'm gathering the information from scholars like David Biven or the famous Jewish scholar Samuel Safrai or Brad Young or Robert Lindsay or Lois Tverberg. We have Christian and Jewish scholars and Biven and Safrai, Brad Young, Robert Lindsay, and even Lois Tverberg. They're all part of the Jerusalem School of the Synoptic Gospels and their website is JerusalemPerspective.com. That's one word, Jerusalem Perspective, all one word, dot com. Now, I'm linking you to these articles, but I have to let you know that you might be able to read maybe just a short paragraph or two of these articles, but in order to be part of Jerusalem Perspective, you need to pay $60 a year to enroll. And I have to tell you guys, listen, it, it, it's really worth it. There are hundreds and hundreds of articles from awesome Bible scholars taking us into the historical context of the Bible and the Jewish roots of the Synoptic Gospels, which means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They don't address the Gospel of John. You'll be amazed as you start studying here at Jerusalem Perspective of how your Christian walk will be enhanced and enriched as you go in-depth into the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. Now, I do have an article or two from Lois Tverberg and some other scholars, and I have a link there to the Ein Gedi Resource Center, specifically to a number of articles that have been archived on the Lord's Prayer. These are free. And so Ein Gedi Resource Center is an awesome site for you to access, and it's called Ein Gedi Resource Center org. And again, it's all one word. I'm Getty is E-N-G-E-D-I, E-N-G-E-D-I, I'm Getty. And then a resource center, all one word, I'm Getty Resource Center.org. Awesome, scholarly, free articles. And, then what, and the nice thing about it is, especially if you read Lois Tverberg's article, she's got an awesome bibliography that will even take you even deeper into the ideas of not only the Lord's Prayer, but so many things about the Jewish roots of our faith and reconnecting to those days 2,000 years ago. 
So if you're a serious student of the Bible, these resources, JerusalemPerspective.com and EngediResourcesCenter.org, the, the, these are things that should be part of your um, study resources. So from them, from Robert Lindsay, from David Biven, from Samuel Safrai, these are the ones who are teaching me, again, about the Jewish people in the first century. So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, as we find out from the article from Robert Lindsay, which you have a link, again, on the website, lightamenorah.org, and it's in the session description for this session. And this session is uh, Torah um, Truth Nuggets 12, Lesson 6, Part 2 of the Lord's Prayer. So I've got that link to Robert Lindsay's article there, and you'll be able to access it. And like I said, you may only read, be able to read a couple of paragraphs because it is Jerusalem perspective. And again, in order to actually access the complete articles, you need to be a member of this scholarly website. So kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, quite definitely, they are synonymous. They mean the same thing. But what about, let's go to Luke 22, verse 30. Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's the night before he dies. He is in what we would call, or we're familiar with, the upper room. And in verse 30 of Luke 22, he says, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you'll also find this concept, or Jesus' own words, talking about my kingdom in John 18, 36. My kingdom. Now, wait a minute. We had the kingdom of God, and then we had the kingdom of heaven. So somebody might ask the question, wait a minute, are there two kingdoms? Well, we've settled that. We now understand that in Jesus' day, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven basically meant the same thing because, again, of the Pharisees' fence around the Torah that do not say God's word, don't even say the word God, so they would say the kingdom of heaven. So does Jesus have his own kingdom? My kingdom? Nope. Jesus is connecting my kingdom to the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying in Luke 22, 30 is my kingdom. He's saying, I'm God. He's saying it in a very Jewish way. He does this over and over and over again in all four Gospels. But he's doing it in such a way that it's to that Jewish culture. And they would have understood it. They got it. They understood it. We should remember this. This is in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 33. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. And the Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah means, dedication. So this is the Feast of Hanukkah. This is taking place in Jerusalem. So it's December. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch, snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Now here's the key verse. The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So Jesus talks about my kingdom. The disciples get it. What is Jesus saying? I'm God. Here in John chapter 10, verses 20 through to 33, we see another aspect. Jesus is basically saying that he is God. I highly recommend, for those of you new to the Light of Menorah podcast, and maybe this is your first session that you've ever listened to, a while back I did podcasts, and they're titled Truth Nuggets 4, and there's part 1 and part 2. Truth Nuggets 4, part 1 and part 2. And they're entitled, What's Your Name? This is based upon Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And here you will again see how those early believers, and I'm talking about right after Jesus ascends to the Father, probably 5, 10, maybe 15 years later, in the city of Philippi, how even there in chapter 2 we find that they looked upon Jesus as God. Here's another one that I wanted you to see. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. And here we read, For the Lord your God... Now, let me just stop here real quick, because I want to show you how the fence of the Pharisees has made it even into our Bibles today. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And here in Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, I read the phrase, For the Lord your God. Now, Lord is capitalized, which means that in the original Hebrew is God's name, Yahweh. When Jewish scribes would copy the Bible, they would not copy God's name, or they would copy God's name, but they would pronounce it at an I. So that is the substitute word. And the substitute word we have here is Lord. So every time in the Old Testament I see the word Lord capitalized, I know that behind that in the original Hebrew is God's name. yud heh vav Yahweh, as I pronounce it. So, in verse 17, for the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who does not sow partiality nor take a bribe. So, indeed, we have what God is saying, I am the God of gods. I'm the only God. I am the Lord of lords. He is the only Lord. And we already know that the Jewish people looked upon God as king. He is the only king. But then... We go to Revelation 19.16. We read a famous phrase. And on his robe and on his thigh, 
he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can also find this in Revelation 17, verse 14, and in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Now, Jesus is King of Kings, but wait a minute. God is King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. He's the only King. He's the highest King. And now we have Jesus as King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords, but God is Lord of Lords. What is John saying in his writings here in Revelation chapter 19? He's inspired by God to tell us that Jesus is God. So the first Messianic believers, all the disciples of Yeshua, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is God. Remember what Jesus said to Philip in the upper room? Hey, gee, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in the first century AD, in Judea, in Jerusalem, we have some very interesting phrases that we've been dealing with. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus talks about my kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of Jesus are all the same. Jesus is God. Now one of the things in the phraseology that we're focusing in on is this idea of your kingdom coming. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, for many Christians today, and for me, prior to the time when I really started studying biblical Hebrew and the Jewish culture, our view, my view, when we talk about your kingdom come, is, and we, we dealt about, we dealt this, uh, with this in part one of this series, when we talked about how do we look as Christians upon God's kingdom, thy kingdom come. So our view might be is that Jesus' Jesus's kingdom hasn't even come yet. It's still coming. We're waiting. Jesus is king only when he returns. But there's only one kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus' kingdom. And in the Greek manuscripts, you will not find this if you're using a New American Standard Bible with the Strong's numbers. You will not find this with a King James Bible with the Strong's numbers. You need to see the real Greek manuscripts. The Greek manuscripts have a very unique Greek word, altheto. And altheto is the word that has been translated from the Greek to the English as come, thy kingdom come. However, when you go into and looking for the Strong's number, you come up with G2064. G2064 is the Greek word erchkame, which means to come, to arrive. Now, Dr. Brad Young, and I have his article also linked at our website, his article on the Lord's Prayer. He goes into the use of this word altheto and why it's not erchkame, 
or Etikamai. And he said the reason being is, and you can find this in Thayer's Greek Lexicon. Once I read Brad Young's article, I do have Thayer's Greek Lexicon and a number of aids to help me in Quinonine Greek or Biblical Greek. Eltheto is related to the verb erchamai. Erchamai again, its Strong's number is G2064. But Eltheto is a special way, a special verb that comes from erchamai in a special tense in the biblical Greek. That's as far as I'm going to take it with you guys. It is very complex, and you have to study the biblical Greek. So when we look at the word eltheto, it doesn't mean come. It means to come, but in a very special way. We might actually say it this way. Your kingdom, which was and is and will always be, May it continue to expand. May it continue to grow. May it continue to be established in the world and in me. May it continue to be established. The concept of coming, but coming in the sense that it's already here, so you want it to expand. You want it to enlarge. You want it to be established. Now this fits the Jewish understanding of 2,000 years ago. God's kingdom was. God's kingdom is. God's kingdom will always be. Only for the simple reason, God was, God is, and God will always be. God is king. It's not a place, it's not a location, and it's not related to time. He was always king. He is now king and will always be. So Jesus when he's teaching this prayer 2,000 years ago, to them and to us, it's Jesus is saying that in this prayer, we're, we're basically praying, we want his kingdom to continue to expand. We want his, content, his kingdom to continue to grow. We want him only to be king in the world and king in our lives. We want the kingdom to be part of our lives, an intimate part of our existence. This is so harmonious with Jesus saying, and we remember this is in the book of Matthew, repent for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, he says, is at hand. So we would say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Again, in those days, they would probably not even say the word God. We see that in the book of Matthew. But Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That Greek word there is engizo. We talked about that in part one. It's Strong's number is G1448. And engizo from Thayer's Greek lexicon, it means to be close. So close that you're joining one thing to another. So one can say, Repent for God's kingdom. Repent for my kingdom, in Jesus' words. May it be part of your life. May it be joined together with your life. Jesus is saying the king is here and he's intimately close to you. 
Now in this verse, Matthew 6.10, we have two statements. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And in the Greek, when you go to the Greek, these statements are not joined by any conjunctions. So in other words, it does not say your kingdom come and your will be done. It does not say your kingdom come or your will be done. It just says your kingdom come, your will be done. In Robert Lindsay's article from the Jerusalem School of Synoptic Gospels, and again, as I mentioned, that website for that website that I highly suggest you get involved with, JerusalemPerspective.com. His article is called The Kingdom of God, God's Power Among Believers. Robert Lindsay, this highly reputable scholar, Christian scholar, a biblical historian and one who takes us back into Jesus' culture, he shows that in Jesus' day, that to enter the kingdom from a Jewish perspective, a perspective in Judaism, that to enter God's kingdom means to accept God's rule and reign as king. To accept God's rule and reign as the only God. And the way you show this is by loving God, by serving him, and by obeying him. Now Lindsay shows this by a statement from Rabbi Yehoshua ben Chorcha. And Rabbi Yehoshua ben Korcha was a rabbi in the early 2nd century AD, so perhaps 70 years, maybe 80 years after Jesus' time. And Lindsay would say this is very close to Jesus' time, so it's very, very likely that in Jesus' day they would have said the same thing or believed in the same thing. So from Lindsay's article, I'm reading, this is illustrated by a statement, as I said, of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Korha, and his statement is this, Why is Hero Israel, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, why is Hero Israel recited before, if then you obey the commandment, 13 to 21, in the daily prayers? To indicate that one should accept first the kingdom of heaven, and only afterwards the yoke of the commandments, or the responsibility of doing the commandments. The rabbis felt that when a person confessed, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, he is indicating his or her intention to keep the Torah. Then that person came under God's rule and authority, and thus came into the kingdom of God. Having accepted God's authority over him or her, the person was able to begin keeping the commandments. Thus, if the kingdom of God is established in me, then I love God, I serve him, and I will obey him. So, if, okay, the kingdom of God is established in me, that means immediately I will be loving God, I'll serve him, and obey him. Or, if I love God, and if I'm serving him, and if I obey him, then immediately you conclude that I'm in the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of God is established in me. But in God's Torah, God states his will for his people. Now, so far we've got this. 
we've got the statement that if the kingdom of God is established in me, then I will obey God, I will love him, and I will keep his commandments. Or vice versa, if I love him, serve him, and keep his commandments, I have entered the kingdom of God. But I want to address another word here. In the Torah, God states his will for his people. Now let me stop here just for a second. God's will is... The simplest way I can describe it is his purposes, his plan, his agenda, not only for the universe, not only for nations, not only for Jew and Gentile, but also his will for me, his plan and his purposes, all the details from Genesis to the book of Revelation. So, there are a number of times we can read about God's will. So, let me show you one place. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. And I read, Now Israel, what does the Lord God require from you? In other words, what is God's will for you, Israel? Let me read that again. Now, Israel, what does the Lord God require from you? Or we might say, now, Israel, what is God's will for you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. So that is God's will for his people. And since this is God's word, we can almost say this is God's will for us as well. This is a shorthand phrase, two verses, that really get at the essence of God's will for us, his people. In other words, take the whole Bible and put it into two verses, and you've got it. This is what God wants from us. Robert Lindsay then suggests... That as we take a look at the Lord's Prayer, we have that phrase, your kingdom may have continued to be established and your will be done are synonymous. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom continue to be established and your will be done are the same phrase. Why? To enter the kingdom... It means, and I'm looking at Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13, to fear your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep his commandments. But if I'm doing that, the Jews and Jesus, they believe that you've entered the kingdom. But that's God's will. So if God's kingdom has been established in you, you are doing God's will. Which means you're fearing God, you're walking in his ways, you're loving him and serving him with all your heart, with all your soul, and you're keeping the Lord's commandments. If your kingdom, Jesus, is established in me, it means I'm doing the will of God. If I'm doing the will of God, then the kingdom is established in me. Let me do that again. If your, ki if your kingdom, Jesus, is established in me, it means I'm doing the will of God. You might say the will of the Father. However, I can reverse it. 
if I'm doing the will of the Father, if I'm doing the will of God, then the kingdom has been established in me. Now, what's interesting is this concept from Senka Temple Judaism. Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, verse 21. In Matthew 7, verse 21, we read, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is about getting into the kingdom of heaven. But his, but the rest of the phrase is, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. The will of my Father. 2,000 years ago, his disciples got it. And now we get it too. Now for the disciples of Jesus, meaning the disciples 2,000 years ago and for us today. God's will. I mean, there's, there's so many aspects of God's will. There's so many facets of God's will. But we know God's will, the Father's will, His purpose is that His Son will be born as a man and die. For the sins of all mankind. We know that is a purpose. That's part of the agenda. That is God's will. His will in his kingdom is to provide a way for all of us to be saved. But we must choose to accept his salvation. It's not just given to everyone. But God has provided a way through the cross for the salvation of both Jew and Gentile but we must choose it we must repent we must seek forgiveness in Yeshua and then as we accept Jesus as Lord of Lords and King of Kings and we decide that we will obey him and follow him we are in his kingdom Finally, in the New American Standard Version in Matthew 6.10, we have the phrase, well, let me just read the, whole, read the whole phrase again. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're saying your will should be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. But when we actually look at the Greek in Matthew 6.10, it doesn't say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the Greek, it says, let your will be accomplished in heaven and on earth. Why? God's creation is the heavens and the earth, as we read from Genesis. There's no need for God's will to be done where God dwells. That makes no sense. It's for us here in his creation in the heavens and the earth that he created that we would do his will so matthew 6 10 your kingdom come your will be done in heaven and on earth now takes on an enhanced meaning our understanding is deepened and it's widened 
we might now say, rather than your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we might say this, based upon everything that we've learned in lesson, in part one and part two of lesson six. We might say, your kingdom, Jesus, your rule and your reign, may it continue to grow. May your rule and reign, may it continue to be established, not only in my life, but throughout the world. Your will, O oh God, your plan and purposes for the universe, for all nations, for me, I accept. And I choose Jesus as Savior, as King, as Messiah. I choose Jesus as God alone. Amen and amen. Thank you.